Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 120. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you for bringing us through a joyous celebration of Hanukkah. We're in time when we can um, remind ourselves of the, the, the miracles that you performed for us as a people. This would extend uh, by way of theology to people who are non-Jewish, people who don't identify themselves as Israelites, but nevertheless understand the, the themes surrounding Hanukkah and the fact that God was faithful even when we were unfaithful. Thank you, Lord, that you are calling us out and you're calling us upwards and higher, and that you're bringing us into this renewed relationship and continued strengthened relationship with you as our God, and we are your people. Bless you for all of the um, the, the, um, uh, the provisions and the protection and uh, the challenges that are presented to us as year after year we celebrate this joyous time of year around this time. Even though Hanukkah and Christmas are overlapping with one another often on the calendar, there are things that we can um, draw from either one of these holidays about uh, the light coming into the world, the true light of Messiah being uh, uh, made uh, uh, relevant to us and uh, being made present to us and being actualized. And um, uh, even the secular people around us, people who aren't celebrating uh, Christmas for the Christ, for the for for Jesus Himself, are still being exposed to um, a lot of uh, biblical concepts, um, messianic concepts, um, um, the idea of, of Jesus' birth and the nativity scenes and all of the carols that you know, like the you know the first Noel and and, and little town of Bethlehem and all the songs that include biblical ideas, Lord. Um, even if we don't celebrate Christmas as messianics, there's still an opportunity for this time period to be able to reach out to um, uh, uh, our friends, our family members, our coworkers around us who maybe aren't Christians, who aren't believers, and and ask them, you know, who is the Christ of Christmas? What do you make of this Jesus who's who's sung about and spoken about, and 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 what do you think about that? And so, give us holy boldness as we seek to share our faith. With those around us, even in the midst of the scary time that we live, the pandemic. Um, thank you, Lord, that uh, there's been development with all the vaccines and all of the the, the, the research and the and and things like that. We know that you're continuing to watch over us as families, as communities, and raising us up. Uh, help us to to not fear, but to have faith in you. Um, uh, faith that you will 
keep us safe, uh, that you'll protect us, uh, faith that you will provide for us in the midst of the, the, the um, uh, economic uncertainty. Uh, are they going to pass, pass the stimulus checks or not, right? Are we going to get that money that we need? Um, you know, things like that. What's our government doing? Lord, uh, the, all of the political shaking and, and, and swaying back and forth and the confusion. And of course, uh, in the middle of all that, we've got all of the um, – the uh, uh, racial tension in America and, and, and all of that. Lord, these are troubling times, and, and now more than ever, we as individuals, people who name the name of God through the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, now more than ever, we have got to have a solid relationship with our Lord Yeshua. This means we've got to spend time with you on a daily basis. We've got to be pressing in, create quiet time, quality time. We've got to spend time reading the word. We've got to allow your um, uh, truths to, to penetrate our thoughts to shape the way that we uh, view the world around us. Uh, we've got to allow your precious Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to 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 um, speak to us uh, through the words, through the witness uh, that's been left for us by uh, Messiah Yeshua. And we've got to continue to turn away from sin and to turn into the Spirit and say yes to God and no to the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for all of these responsibilities. Continue to raise us up, protecting us and providing for us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. I just want to send a hearty thanks to everyone who's joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a real life congregation in Thornton, Colorado. And we are actually meeting again, as I've uh, learned where you can join us in person and online, go to our website at graftedin.com. Like you can see, see on my screen right now, I've got our website pulled up. And you can join us as well. Click on the contact link uh, on our website, and you can learn about our location, address, phone numbers, maps, things like that. And you're welcome to come on out. We are continuing to practice the guidelines that our, that our local authorities are instructing us to do you know, the social distancing, the mask wearing, um, the hand washing and things, sanitizing and all that stuff. But um, uh, sure, come on out and join us. If not, join us online. As you can see right now, I've got um, uh, the Harvest website pulled up and uh, Pastor Mark has been going through a series on Hanukkah uh, and the general themes of the war between light and darkness and is in part two of that series, at least according to the video that's uploaded lately. And um, as I mentioned, I've got my own uh, Torah teaching website at uh, tetzetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right now I'm on the live internet studies page. Uh, but... Um, you can see from the cluster of links right here on my screen that there are lots of resources available for you as well. And uh, I invite you to come on out and or come on out. I invite you to go online uh, from the safety of wherever you are and uh, avail yourself of all the resources that I make available uh, for you. Uh, these are live internet studies. Let me just read some of the announcements real quick. Um, as I mentioned, this is episode number 120. The meeting date for the recording is December. 19th, that's 2020 USA date. And I had to add that on there because it occurred to me that people who live on my side of the world here in Korea, it's actually the 20th right now. It's Sunday morning, but we meet Saturday nights for American time. So if you're actually watching, if you're actually able to tune in at the, at live, really, when I'm doing the shows, it would be on a Sunday morning and the date would be one day later if you're on, on my side of the world. 
So I thought I'd put that in there. Uh, we meet Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So set your clock against the CST and you'll be able to meet with us. And we're back to our normal schedule. We had a special Hanukkah show last week, but this week we're back to our regular two 30-minute segments. First segment one, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food Oh My. We're in part 38 tonight. And it'll be a lot of review for this show because we've got to kind of catch up as adults. We need to figure out where are we going with a study that's kind of ongoing or never-ending type study. So we uh, did a lot of review tonight, um, a lot of reading. Segment two, uh, we'll continue our Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity study. Paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 55. Uh, this is also uh, an ongoing or uh, a study, like I said, a never-ending study. Um, it feels like never-ending sometimes. It's ongoing because it's you know week after week and you just take a little bit by little bit. We'll watch the two featured YouTube videos that I was going to watch last week, but I didn't get around to them, so we'll watch them this week. First one is First um, Peter 1, 15 to 16, B ye holy for I am holy. These are the theme, some of the themes that surround Hanukkah, which the word Hanukkah is rooted in the word that uh, is typically translated as dedicate or dedication or something like that. So, And it refers to, it, the word actually does show up in the Bible where Solomon dedicated the temple, um, the temple dedication. And, and the same thing happened in Hanukkah. So that's what Hanukkah refers to as the dedication or rededication of the temple back to God. But the themes surrounding that are holiness and set-apartness and um, um, uh, covenant loyalty and things like that. So we'll watch two videos. The second one is Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. You shall be holy for I am holy. As always, uh, if you'd like to join us during the live classes, be a part of the live experience where we interact with one another, um, where we've got the exclusive after-show chat where we open up the microphones and just uh, share ideas back and forth, and you can get content that you're not going to find uploaded to YouTube or in uh, iTunes Store or anything anything like that. Um, Join us via Skype each week from live from my computer to your computer. Um, get the group, the, the the Skype app, and make yourself a Skype account. That's the easiest way. Both of those are free. Um, otherwise, you're definitely going to need this group link. And as I always mention, the best way to get it is to go to my website at tatesaytora.com, and from any page, scroll to the very bottom of the website to that section that's black where it says Weekly Parashar Archives, and click on the little button that you see on my screen right now that with the little red arrow indicating that says email. That's my email. Send me an email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. Send me an email and tell me that you'd like to join the Skype class, and I'll send you the um, private group link, and that way you can join Skype that way. And as I mentioned, you don't really need a Skype account to join us. You don't even really need the Skype app if you're just using a desktop or a laptop. I think you only need the... the um. You only need a Skype account and or a Skype installed. You only need those if you are joining via either a smartphone like your iPhone or Android phone or a tablet or an iPad or something that has a smartwatch. I don't know. Um, and then um, it's always nice if you, while you're down there on, the, on that side of the uh, part of my website, to um, take a look at that little yellow donate button. Um, I'm in a position of my life right now where uh, I can use financial help from those around me, friends, family members, and people who are in a position where they can share. If God is blessing you with uh, 
a little bit more <laughs> money, then um, feel free to share it with me. I know you probably got other things you could use the money for, but I'm just uh, giving you an opportunity to be a blessing to me as a ministry. Um, uh, that's how I'm surviving right now. Um, uh, you know, donations from friends and family members and, and people who are helping to swore me. And, uh, you know, Hashem only knows how long this period will last. Hopefully it'll be short because it's uncomfortable. But, um, you know, usually I'm in a position where I'm just blessing others. Well, hey, I've got an abundance. I've got extra. I've got surplus. Let me share with others. And uh, that's the way the Bible works. That's the way God's work works. You know, Yeshua himself alluded to this idea that it's that it's m- more blessed to give than it is to receive. So just follow in the steps of the mass, footsteps of the master and, and um, learn to be a giver. Learn to allow God's spirit to, to motivate you to give and to pour through you and to bless you as you bless others who are in positions where they are uh, in need, okay? All right, that's all I'll say on that matter. All right, let's jump into the liturgy real quick. Let's do this the right way I'm normally supposed to do it. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, I end up uh, going out of order, but this time I'll try to stay in the right order. Uh, let's read the liturgy that I was um, uh, uh, going to read probably a week or two ago, but I didn't. Ezekiel 36, we've read this in the past. Those of you who are with me in my live class are going to recognize this. Um, this is related to the topic that we're going to be talking about um, uh, in uh, about the Sabbath later on, and it's also directly related to uh, the, the Trinity uh, topics where we're going to be finalizing our little talk on the Holy Spirit. But this is a spirit passage, Ezekiel 36, starting, if I scroll down to verse 22, to um, Ezekiel the prophet is explaining to Israel um, what's going to happen in the future. This is corporate Israel, and the words really speak for themselves. But, but, but I'm telling you this in advance, so I don't have to stop during the reading. But what's really, really powerful in these passages is that God is making a promise to corporate Israel that one day he's going to bring them into a corporate relationship. I don't know if this includes every single Israelite 100%. I don't think that's really what it means. I think it means a corporate representation of of Israel, which means a majority, but maybe not every single Israelite. And we don't know exactly when this is going to happen, but we pray that it happens soon. We've already seen it trickling, right? It's happening in, 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 in piecemeal down through history. But we've never seen this happen. So this is still future where God is going to take Israel and bring them into a messianic relationship with himself. This means that corporately, they're going to profess a knowledge of Messiah. This is not the only passage that mentions this. There are other passages throughout the prophets where God is promising that Israel one day is going to um, recognize him whom they have pierced. Right? Go back and read through Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 and follow that uh, theme all the way to the end. But God is going to bring Israel into um, a relationship with Yeshua, his son. And in doing so, he's going to fill them corporately with his spirit. And once, and once finally, they're going to be able to express covenant loyalty, i.e. Torah obedience, to God the way that God envisioned it, not the way that man um, crafts it or, or, or uh, envisions it or, or thinks it's supposed to be. So we've got man thinking, this is how the way that God wants me to keep his commandments and without the power of the Holy Spirit living inside you, it's human ingenuity. It's human effort. And it, and it looks good on the outside, uh, but sometimes it, it can miss the mark in so many ways. But God says not to worry. I'm going to make it one day, Israel, make it possible for you to actually walk in my ways and keep my commandments. And you're going to be doing it from the inside out. You're going to be motivated and empowered, not by your own strength, but by my strength. My spirit's going to do what? My spirit's going to circumcise your hearts. 
That's the only way to truly know without a doubt that you're 100% pleasing to God in, in, in every way possible because your heart has been changed. Until that heart circumcision takes place, then you're, 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 you're not quite going to get everything the way that God wants it. There's going to be some limitations and there'll be some, uh, you know, there'll be some pleasant results even from a human point of view, but um, it's just not going to reach its fullness. And so these passages uh, shore up all of that. So let's pick up our reading. We're going to start right there in Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll read verse 22 down through verse, I think I'll stop at verse 28. That captures what I'm looking for, just just that section, okay? Um, I know I'm kind of breaking into context. Go back and read this passage on your own and read read, read all the, the what, what God has to say to Israel. And if you're a Christian listening to this and you're thinking, well, I'm not Israel. Well, that might be true. Um, but pray for national Israel. Pray for unsaved Israel. Pray that God's will be done in their lives. Pray that you can play a part in bringing them both individually and corporately, to a place where they can recognize who their Messiah is so that they can truly be pleasing to God from the inside and on the outside. Okay? Amen? Amen. All right, let's read these passages. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll read the English on the left, which is ESV, and then I'll read the Hebrew on the right. And I'll try not to butcher it like I've done in the past. Uh, uh, So embarrassing when I can't read the Hebrew right. But I'm practicing, so bear with me. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 22. And I will vindicate, I'm sorry, 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I just want to stop and, and, and remind you, notice that God is, is doing all of these things, right? It's not for your sake, it's for my sake. It's not you uh, that's so righteous and holy that you're going to conjure this up on your own. I'm the one that's doing this. This is, this is the work of God, people. It's right before our eyes, and we need to God the credit and the glory. But it's not this robotic, God's just going to be pushing buttons and we're going to be going through them. No, there is this interaction between our will and God's will. That's behind the scenes. That's, that's woven into the fabric of the promises. But primarily, at the end of the day, God gets his way. That's the point I'm trying to make, right? God is sovereign, and his spirit is sovereign over all things. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um. And I will vindicate uh, the holiness. Uh, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. All right, I read that verse. Verse twenty-four. I will take. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse twenty-five. I'll, that was verse twenty-four. Verse twenty-five. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Scroll up. Verse twenty-six. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. There's the passage that jumps off the page to us. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That heart circumcision and the new spirit, this is nothing short of messianic transformation. Okay? This can only happen when God opens the blinded eyes and allows a person to receive 
uh, Messiah and the Holy Spirit. That's what's being described here. It's not, it's not some new, strange uh, relationship that God's describing that's different than what the Christians already have known down through the ages, a new heart and a new spirit. This is Messianic language. And so this is why this passage is so powerful. The only difference is this is going to be on a corporate level, and we'll be able to see Israel walking this out like they had never been they've never been able to do it before and so um uh, uh that's that's what's going on verse 27 and i will put my spirit within you and cause you look at the cause and effect here watch what's going to happen i'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful uh to obey my rules so uh what's really nice about this is that uh the result of god putting his spirit within and giving a new heart is that israel will be able to finally one day walk into the ways of God in a way that they've never been able to before. They've never been able to. Superficially, they've been walking God's ways all along, but now they're going to be able to do it motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit like any Christian can and should be doing. All right, so that's what's going on. Let's go back and read now the Hebrew of the same uh, passage. Let me scroll back up here. What did I say? Start in verse 22. Okay. So we want to start over on the right side of the page, which is right there. All right. The Hebrew says, Verse 23 says, Verse 24 says, Verse 25 Verse 26 says, Right, God's spirit attain Bakir Bahim Vasiti eight Asher Bukai Telehu Mishpatai Tishmanu Vasitem. And then the final Pasak, the final verse, verse twenty-eight. Vi Shavtem Ba Aretz Asher Natati Lavotehem Vehitem Li Laam Vaanuhi Ehe Lachem Le Elohim. So these are the promises. Go back and read them. I know if you don't identify as Israel, it's easy to kind of distance yourself and say, well, that's them. I'm me. I'm not Israel. But you've got to remind yourself, according to Paul's theology, you've been brought into a relationship with Israel at the covenant level that includes um, engrafting to the promises of Israel. Read Romans chapter 11 all over again. And so your relationship with Israel, I believe, is at a remnant level. You exist alongside of the um, remnant Israelites in this in this um, new covenant relationship with God through the Son of God, uh, which brings you into proximity to the, the promises 
that God made to Israel, and they extend now to you as wild olive tree branches who've been brought into this relationship with God at that level. So don't think of Israel as a so distant partner. Think of them more as your um, your brothers in Messiah. Um, uh, the, the ones who don't believe yet are still brothers. They're covenant brothers. They're just estranged a little bit. They don't yet believe in Messiah, but they're still part of this larger covenant family that... Um, includes those who are loyal to God. But the ones who believe in Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles who, who have laid hold of the Messiah, they are in this unique relationship that God envisions can happen only with a circumcised heart and an infilling of the Spirit. So having said all that, let's turn to Romans 14 for the, the, the other part of our liturgy. And I've got a lot of liturgy to read. Um, to, in order to catch up to where we left off and do kind of a little bit of review, I've got to read Romans 14 verses 1 through... 13, 13 verses. So I won't belabor it. Um, we'll talk about it when the time comes for Romans 14. I'll just read the liturgy. So starting over on the right side, left side of the page, hopefully my screen won't freeze. Uh, Romans 14, starting in verse 1, Paul says, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 2, one person believes he made anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, even he shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And so that's the the passage where that's the what we're gonna be looking at tonight in Romans. Let me just go back and up and read the Greek for you. Just bear with me. This will take a little bit longer since I'm reading so much. And I'll try not to stumble through the Greek. We're gonna start right there. Okay, uh, verse one says, "Tande astenunta te piste pras lambaneste me eis dia crises dia lagismon." Verse two, "Has men pistue fagin panta hada astenon la cante estie." Verse three, "Ha estion tan me estianta me exuthaneto hade me estion tan estianta me crineto hade theos gar al tan pras elabato." Verse four. Su tis e hakrinon alatrion oikatin to idio kurios deke e pipte stathesatai de dunate gar hakurias stasai autan. Verse five. Hos min gar krine himeron par himeron hos de krine. 
pasan himeran hekastos into idio noi pleophoresto. Verse 6. Ha fronon ten himeran curio frone. Kai ha me fronon ten himeran curio u frone. Ha estion curio estie euchariste gar totheo kai ha me estion. I'm sorry, estion. Curio uc estie kai euchariste totheo. Verse 7. Udes gar himon. Hauto zeg kai udes. Hauto. Apoth Verse 8. Ian te gar zomen to curio zomen. Ian te apoth neskomen to curio. Apoth neskomen in te un. Zomen in te apoth neskomen to curio esmen. Verse 9. Ace tuta gar Christos apethenen kai ex. Ez ezason hinakai necron kai zoton curiuse. Verse 10. Su de ti crines ton adelfon su, e kai su ti exutanes ton adelfon su. Pantes gar parab ste somatha to bemati tu theu. And just by way of uh, uh, interest, this last phrase right here in the Greek, to bemati tupteu, the uh, judgment seat of God. There's actually a variant in the Greek. In the majority text, this is actually to bemati tu Christa, uh, Christu, the, the the judgment seat of Christ, probably borrowed from uh, a Corinthians passage that Paul about. But the older texts, the, what, what uh, uh, translators recognize as the more authoritative, probably the original, is the, the, the judgment seat of God. And this is based on the fact that he talks about um, uh, confessing to God in the next verse, verse 11, and then giving of an account himself to God in verse 12. So it's likely that Tobemati Tutheu is probably the original reading. But we'll see how this bears relevance to the way we interpret the passage, uh, particularly who are the brothers that we're going to be discussing in verse uh, uh, in this particular passage. So let's continue in the um, uh, liturgy here. Verse 11 says, Grabtai garar zo ego legi kurias hati emoi kamfe pan ganu kai pasa glosa exalama gesetai to theo. Verse 12 says, Ara un hekastas himon peri how to logon dose to theo. Verse 13, is that the last one I'm read? Yeah. Make it un alelus crinomen ala tuta crinata malan to me tithenai praskama to adelpho e scandalon. And that will be the liturgy, and I think I did pretty good. I didn't stumble over, I think I only stumbled over only one word there, so I think I did pretty good. I'm patting myself on the back there. Alrighty, let's watch the short little videos real quick. Um, two videos on uh, being holy, and um, uh, I won't uh, say a lot more about them. Let's see what order I want to watch them. I think the first Peter one comes first. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every few days we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Let's talk about holiness today. Let me read 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 from the KJV for us. 
But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It has been stated that holiness is not metaphysical. Our concept of holiness does not define what is holy. Only the Holy One Himself can fully define, as well as embody, holiness. To be sure, the phrase, I am Adonai, or its equivalent, I am Adonai your God, appears 16 times in Leviticus chapter 19 alone. Chapter 23 sees another four uses of these phrases. The lesson is obvious. Adonai alone defines holiness among men. Only he has the power and authority to set the standard of holiness, for he alone is the fullness of holiness, for he alone is Adonai. So, what happens when humanity meets holiness? Hashem is intimately interested in our redemption. Likewise, He's our deliverer from the unholy. That is why He masterfully planned for one man to become the perfect embodiment and display of His holiness. Only this man would be able to showcase the fullness of the holiness of God to such a degree that to look at this man was to look at God. Only this man would be able to perfectly imitate God, for only this man was and is perfectly God. Yeshua is his name, and he sets the standard. We must grasp this central truth and begin to live according to it. We are holy because Yeshua has made us holy. Just as unrighteous Abraham became righteous when he placed his complete faith in Hashem, so we too inherit the righteousness and holiness of the Holy One when we place our unreserved trust in His Son. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every few days we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. In the previous video, I closed with this important scriptural truth. We are holy because Yeshua has made us holy. Just as unrighteous Abraham became righteous when he placed his complete faith in Hashem, so we too inherit the righteousness and holiness of the Holy One when we place our unreserved trust in His Son. Let us continue this holiness theme by talking about the duty of holiness. Let's talk about holiness as expressed, for instance, in our diet. Leviticus 11:44 and 45 reads, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 
Once again, that's from the KJV. Surely these laws and rulings are meant for the people whom they are addressed, as they would find themselves wishing to approach Hashem, but are they meant for the rest of the nations as well? We affirm that the Torah was given to Israel, but could a non-native-born person also join himself to Israel's God, Israel's people, and subsequently to Israel's Torah as a non-native-born Israelite? To answer these questions head-on, we need to come to this extremely important contextual conclusion first. The verses in examination today are covenant language reserved for those in covenant agreement with Hashem. One standard was to be established and agreed upon for all Israel, a standard she would be held accountable for to eventually share with the surrounding nation groups as well. Read Deuteronomy 4, 1-14. Since all men share the same Creator, we can therefore conclude that these distinctions of holy and unholy are applicable for those of the surrounding nations who are in covenant with God as well as for Jewish Israel who is in covenant with God. Our God is exclusive. Our God is consistent. Okay, I trust the videos were a blessing to you. And as always, if you'd like to um, uh, uh, watch more videos that I upload, then head on over to my YouTube channel. At, uh, as you can see on my screen, I've got the address pulled up, youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. And from the home screen you can uh, uh, of the website, of the YouTube channel, um, you can see all of the uh, the videos as they're uploaded from the first time I uploaded them to the from the oldest to the newest, and uh, they're kind of broken down into the, into different playlists and things like that. But if you want to see them in the order of newest, like the latest videos, then click on the little videos tab, and you, uh, uh, YouTube will sort them by way of the latest videos, so you can see the latest one right here, uh, the the Hanukkah show that we did last year last uh, week, I'm sorry, and uh, follow all the videos there. And as I mentioned always, uh, four things that you make sure you want to do, maybe a fifth one I should add. Number one, make sure you subscribe so that you're in the loop. Um, and to really make sure you're in the loop, hit the little bell for notifications. That way uh, you get notified on your mobile device uh, when I upload videos and it'll notify you if you've got a YouTube account as well. You get little notifications that way. The third thing you want to make sure you're doing is um, um, hitting the little like, hit the little thumbs up, because I know you're going to like my videos, right? I mean, my content is so unique, it's the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, hit the thumbs up if you like my videos. If you don't like them, hit the thumbs down. I'm fine with that as well. But then the fourth thing is to hit the little share button. Uh, share my videos with others. Uh, I've got long videos, I've got short videos. Uh, so on your social media, if you'd like longer or shorter content, I've got both types. Uh, but feel free your sharing. And then one of these days, I'll add a little fifth option, which is to leave comments. Leave comments. I like comments on my videos as well. I, I like when people say, right on, Ariel, you hit the nail on the head. I totally agree. But you know what? I'm also fine with people saying, what are you talking about? What are you crazy? That's way out in left field. I'm fine with that as well because I like to be challenged. And uh, sometimes I have uh, blinders and I need to see things that I didn't see before. So go ahead and tell me what you like or dislike about my videos. I'm fine with that either way. Alrighty. 
Okay, let's turn now, let me close that tab. Let's turn now to the um, Romans 14 study uh, entitled uh, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my. And I don't know how much new material we're going to cover tonight because we miss a week as adults, we always have to do review because we don't remember where we're at and we don't know what's going on. So this is going to be a lot of review uh, tonight, so it may not be as long of a study, but it'll be a lot of review. I do have some reading that I do want to do, but let me just kind of give you an overview of where the study is going and why. What I did is I wrote a commentary. Uh, it's not a very um, detailed commentary like many of my others. It's more of a study guide. It's meant to be um, just followed along with these live studies, which is why it's called Unplugged. A lot of audio, not a lot of written things to read, but th this is kind of a, an outline, you know, and it ended up being like 30 pages of an outline. But... Um, I put this together earlier this year, and so it's called uh, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. And the scope and the style of study follows these uh, bullet points that you can see on my screen right now. Give me a second. Let me blow all this up so it's easier for me to read and easier for you guys to follow along with. Yeah. All right. So we've got um, all of these, basically these, these bullet points that outline the uh, the chapter 14 that were uh, that's in question. And I broke the chapter up into these bullet points so that I could follow the, 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 the line of, of thought that Paul is going with. And so we're going to be looking at in the study. This is the overview. Okay. So we need to do a little catch up. Basically, we talked about who are the weak in faith. And what I've ascertained is that the weak in faith are probably not Christians who are still holding on to various Torah observances, even though they're Christians. This definition of the weak in faith as Christians who are weak because they keep Torah is the traditional, popular, standard, and basically the widely accepted position among most Christian evangelicals, Protestants, Catholics, excuse me, Catholics alike. Uh, you're going to find this uh, position um, presented in at the seminary level down. So it starts at the seminary level with all of the deep theological uh, professors and, and, and the theologians and those who can read Greek uh, backwards and forwards and inside and out. And then it works its way down into the pulpits because the people who attend seminaries are the people who end up becoming the pastors in your churches. And so then it works its way into the commentaries that are put together by professors and everybody. And so then people, the lay people like myself, who can actually pick up commentaries online or go to your Bible bookstore, end up reading this particular perspective. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the general perspective, the general consensus, is that the persons that Paul is calling weak in Romans 14, are Christians, primarily Jews, but it would include a Gentile who also does the same thing that Jews do. So it's a, a Jew who who's, has become a Christian. He's laid hold of faith in Jesus. So he's a Christian. He's a brother. This is according to the popular view. But he's weak because he still thinks as a Jew that he has to follow Torah, that he has to keep kosher, that he has to keep special days like Sabbath and 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 and, and festivals, and he has to do all these things that are related to the Mosaic strictures, and that's what's giving him this weakness about him. He should be growing out of those areas of Torah observance as a Christian as he goes along and is convinced later on, like the other strong in the letter the Gentiles, um, he should be convinced that he's no longer under the law. 
He's no longer bound to the Mosaic uh, dietary restrictions. He doesn't have to keep Sabbath, Seventh-day Sabbath. He doesn't have to keep the festivals. He doesn't have to, to watch what he eats. Those are all signs of weakness because they're signs of a different dispensation. They're signs of a different era. They're indicators of an old Mosaic legislation. The law has been done away with its old the Old Testament is old. The New Testament is new. The Old Testament has been replaced by the New Testament. The law of Moses has been replaced by the law of Christ. And so that's, I'm, I'm using gross generalizations, but that's the general consensus of who the weaker faith in. And again, the primary uh, uh, identifi identifier is that the weakness is indicated or expressed in the desire to follow Torah, even though I'm a Christian. And I keep emphasizing that because if you, if you can notice from, from my tone, I'm a Messianic Jew, you can notice from my tone, you can hear it in my voice, this is a kind of looked down upon position from, from a strong looking down to a weak. Even the, the terminology itself is a bit pejorative and rubs, the, it would rub a person who's labeled weak the wrong way. Right, a bit of an immature status, right? Strong. You don't want to be weak. You want to be strong. You don't want to be immature. You want to be mature. You don't want to be, um, 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 you know, uh, uh, something to that effect. Uh, uh, so that's the position that that's arrived at by standard Christian exegesis. I'm challenging all of that in this particular study for various, various, numerous reasons, historical reasons, theological reasons, personal reasons, things like that. But I've come to the stronger opinion, pun intended, that the weak in faith are actually not weak because they keep Torah. The weakness is actually the same stumbling Israelites that Paul already described in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Indeed, the weak are those community members in Paul's purview and within his perspective that have been members of the Israelite community for years, right? They're good standing Israelites. They have a faith in God. They express a loyalty to Torah, right? They're, they're just generally good people. They're part of the faith community that Paul came from before he was a quote unquote Christian, right? But when he was just a messy, a, a standard Jew, he knew these people as his brothers, brother Israelites, but their weakness is an indication of their yet undecidedness when it comes to Jesus being Messiah. They're not hostile to the idea of Jesus being Christ, being Messiah, that they read about in the scriptures. They have a messianic hope and a messianic expectation. They're open to the idea. They're willing to listen to messianic Jews talk about Jesus as Messiah, and they're willing to listen to Gentiles who have also accepted Jesus as Christ, as Lord and Savior. They become saved. So we're talking about unsaved Jews or unchristian Jews or non-Christian Jews. This is the weak in faith, I believe, that Paul is referring to in this letter. This means they're not in a position where they're less favored by God, per se, and they're certainly not in a position where they're looked down upon just because they're still keeping Torah. So it's not a pejorative position. It's just a position laterally where they're undecided, which means next day or next week or next month or next year, they could join the lot of the strong by accepting Yeshua as Messiah. So we need to, we as the strong, need to continue to witness to them and to try and reach them for Messiah. And at the same time, understand that their, their continued faith in God is good. That's a good place to start from. And their continued loyalty to Torah is the right response to God's 
um, uh, uh, commandments, the right response to what God is asking of them as covenant members. So what I'm asking us to do is to broaden our understanding of the communities that existed in Paul's day, particularly how it impacted the, the readers of Paul's day. Now, can we make a direct one-to-one correlation to today's unbelieving Jews? I'm not exactly sure we could do that. That's not what I'm trying to do anyway, really, per se. I'm trying to get a handle on what the text has to say. We can draw some some practical application later on down the road, but first we have to get a handle on what went to Paul. So that's that was the first, the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome as we're going through this particular study. Then we talked about what's the contrast between anything and vegetables, the next two set of verses, and we've come to the, the agreement that it's probably not best to think that Paul is contrasting a kosher diet with a non-kosher diet, Right, some people can eat anything like shrimp and ham and lobster and pork and any other you know dog cockroach whatever you want to put in your mouth, versus other people probably the Jews those Jews again those weak Jews right they're always the troublemakers no seriously I'm just I'm I'm, I'm picking on 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 terminology that we've heard over and over again, but we got to be careful the way we talk, um, but uh, 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 some people are only eating vegetables because they think that you know hey the Mosaic law is still in force. But it's probably not the contrast that Paul's trying to draw in this particular part of his letter. Instead, he's probably trying to draw a contrast between a kosher diet where you can eat what's allowable on the on the diet, meat that's not been sacrificed to idols, and meat that is permissible but from God's standard, versus taking a strictly vegetarian perspective, but you're still kosher. So it's two levels of kosher is really what we're what we're contrasting, not a non-kosher versus a kosher. Again, to say it's a non-kosher versus a kosher is probably anachronistic. It's reading back into Paul something that probably didn't exist. However, saying that this would be food offered to idols versus non uh, non-idolatrous food, that's that's entirely within the per- the scope of what Paul would have been discussing in this particular letter as well. So we could we could factor that into it as well. Uh, the second bullet, the third bullet point, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? We talked about this, about it's probably not a discussion of Sabbath keeping versus Sunday keeping. That again would be out of place and time, anachronistic, a reading back into the text, something that probably didn't exist historically yet. The, the Sabbath versus Sunday debates probably didn't come along until uh, 200s, 300s, 400s, uh, and then finally kind of um, solidified in the late 4th and early 5th centuries where the, 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 the um, established, gentilized Christian church uh, came down with rulings that said it's forbidden to keep Seventh-day Sabbath, blah, 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 blah. But this, this letter by Paul was written in the early, what, maybe the, the early to mid-60s of his day. So it's much too early to read a Sabbath versus Sunday debate into this part of his text. So if that's not what he's talking about, then what is he, what is he talking about when he's talking about any day of the week, one man establish, uh, esteems one day, one man establishes another day? What is he talking about? I believe he's talking about fast days, which were, again, not outlined in the Torah. So they're not mandatory. They're 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 sim they're they're simply um, you know whatever community decides to vote on which fast day is which. So he's talking about fast days versus non-fast days. These would be the one day that one man esteems and another doesn't esteem. One man eats and one man abstains and things like that. The context seems to demand that he's talking about um, um, non-mandatory uh, fast days. The Torah does not mandate a fast day for followers for covenant members 
it leaves that open to the uh, leadership of a uh, denomination of whatever community you belong to in Paul's day. So, and we already know that there were different uh, Judaism Judaisms that had different traditions on which days you should fast and things like that. So, that's probably what he's talking about. It's not Sabbath versus Sunday, and then. Uh, what we've gotten to finally, basically, we're only at this point, is who is the brother? And it's this concept of brother, uh, which ties back to who are the weak in faith, that we've been looking at most recently. And I purport that instead of using kind of Christianese, where we look at brother as obviously this believer in Jesus, instead, we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again that the community that Paul existed and moved amongst and the communities that the Christians, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, uh, the Gentile Christians uh, existed among in Paul's day was a very closely um, uh, organized, somewhat loosely at times, but organized faith community that was made up of Jews and Gentiles that were, that were interacting with one another in the synagogues more freely than we would um, say sometimes envision today because in in, tw- in modern days the, the we've got a, a an us versus them mentality we christians think of the synagogue as them and unbelieving jews as them and the church as us and the christians as us and so it's easier for us to read that back into the text as the brother that paul's talking about must be christians this means everyone who's not under the label brothers and not as is not Everyone who's not a Christian is not a brother, but I, I, um, I surmise that this is not really the best way to um, give Paul credit for using his term "brother" in the broader sense of the word. Yes, it most naturally means a, a Christian, a fellow brother in Christ, uh, and there are verses where it's explicitly, it's, it's no mistake that that's what he's referring to. But I submit to you, listening, that Paul can, when he wants to, from context, mean a brother covenant member, a brother follower after God, a brother Israelite, a brother um, a, a Torah, Torah keeper. And in this broad definition, it allows for us to see that the, the, the communities that he was writing to uh, included unbelieving Jews in the, midst, in the midst of, at the same time, as believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So we had a larger group than is sometimes envisioned by most Christian pastors and commentators. So brother can sometimes include brother Israelite. So the, 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 the takeaway is this. The, the Gentile Christian in Paul's day should not be looking at the Jewish unbeliever as a stranger, but rather as someone who's part of the same community but has not yet come to the same faith in Messiah as I myself as a Gentile Christian have. But we're still part of the same faith community when it comes to believing in God and um, respecting God's commandments. Understand the, the big difference. If, if, if Paul was forming these exclusivistic communities where uh, we're pulling away from the synagogue communities, well, then there's not a lot of um, uh, cohesion that would be built up, uh, especially there's no protection level for these smaller groups from from any other threats outside of them. The the, the local uh, synagogue communities provo- provided a measure of protection uh, uh, from not just Rome, <laughs> who was seeking to, to, to squash any Jewish rebellion that uh, poked its head up, but also giving uh, uh, religious Jews religious freedom to express their um, non- 
uh, um, submission to Rome's um, otherwise required um, state-led authoritative uh, uh, mandatory pagan celebrations, participation, um, things like that. The Judaisms of Paul's days had some exemptions, some religious exemptions and freedoms from that. And unless you belong to the Judaisms, subset of them, a sect of them, then you weren't going to enjoy that. Uh, so what would these uh, Gentiles left to do? So that's kind of what we're talking about. So in closing this particular uh, uh, st part of my study, Romans chapter 14, let me pull up a quote from a Mark um, uh, Nanos, who I've been reading uh, from. He wrote the book that you're seeing on your screen right now. Those of you in, in the live class can't see it, but the post-production folks are looking at this picture of Mark uh, Nanos with the, uh, the Mystery of Romans, uh, one of his first books that he put out going on like 20 years old now. But um, it's still a great read. Uh, but let me pull a quote from a, a paper that he wrote, um, uh, um, an essay that he wrote uh, that's available online. I just pulled it from a website from messianicgentiles.com from their upload library. But the title, the paper is titled Romans to the Churches of the Synagogue of Rome. Let me just read um, just maybe one or two paragraphs, and that will we'll call it a day for this particular part of my study. I'm starting right there. Uh, uh, Nanos writes, Paul did not use the label Christian in his letters, and it's widely recognized that in Paul's time, Christianity did not exist in a formal institutional sense. Instead, Christ's followers were still identifying themselves in Israelite-slash-Jewish terms based on covenant affiliation with the one God who created a people from Abraham's descendants. Those who shared Paul's commitment to Christ were addressed and discussed in terms of ethnicity as Jews or non-Jews slash Greeks, Israelites, or members from the other nations. The Greek word is ethne, which is usually translated as Gentiles. Uh, they were also addressed as circumcised or foreskinned and so on. So we see they weren't usually called Christians. In fact, Paul doesn't use the term Christian at all in any of his letters. Uh, Nanus goes on to say, institutionally, they were identifiable as members. Uh, I'm sorry, let me scroll up a little bit. Institutionally, they were identifiable as members of specific Jewish subgroups within the larger Jewish communities, not as members of a new religion or something other than Judaism. So that's our first kind of uh, wake-up call. In Paul's day, the Christianity that we would know was more a subset of a Judaism, not necessarily a brand new religion that came along that was over and against other than. Understand what I mean? So, as in relationship to the existing Judaisms, there were going to be obviously some uh, related uh, concepts, topics, and terminology, and authoritative structure that's going to carry over. So, let's keep reading. Uh, Nanos says, in spite of the common re recognition of such historical factors, for the most part, Paul's letter to the Romans continues to be discussed in concepts and language as if it is a Christian text representing a time in Christianity, however labeled, is understood to have been something other than Judaism and Christians to have been other than Jews. So again, remember, notice he's challenging this idea of, of other, us versus them. It's too easy to read our Bible as Christians and read about the Jews as those, them, right? Using demonstrative pronouns. Those people as this other group are separate from who we are. And this impacts us when we're reading a letter like the book of Romans and specifically chapter 14 when we start to talk about the weak in faith and the brothers. If brothers to us in Romans 
only refers to the, the group of Christians that are reading the letter and exclusively, to, which we can identify with since we're Christians, then we're, we're forever going to see the Jews who might have been listening to the letter as the outside group, as the other, as the, the foreigners, the strangers to the crowd, um, the ones who are kind of listening in or uh, reading our mail, um, or, or maybe uh, they're just some people who God has given up on, you know, God's turned to a new people group, the Gentiles. And perhaps maybe replacement theology is right, right? Supersessionism perhaps is accurate. Well, no, we need to get that concept out of our head. So Nanos continues, On this reading, any Jews who became Christians in Paul's day are viewed as no longer holding identity as Jews to be of covenant value, the Mosaic covenant having been fulfilled and thus made obsolete. Right? So if that's the case, then Jews who become believers in Jesus leave Judaism, they leave the Torah behind, and they adopt a law-free gospel lifestyle as a Christian, and that's that. And that kind of feels comfortable for us speaking in modern terminology, but in Paul's day, that just simply wouldn't work. It, it won't work historically. Let's continue reading. Uh, Nanos writes, sorry about that, um, starting right there. In other words, these Jews, they are not approached as Jews religiously. Speaking of Jews in Paul's day, they're not approached as Jews religiously as if they continue to practice Judaism according to its funda fundamental norms, which would be Torah observance, circumcision of sons, temple worship, Sabbath keeping, etc., even if they remained ethnically Jews because of birth. Right? That's unfortunately kind of the stereotype that you're going to encounter in your average Christian Bible commentary or average pastoral sermon or seminary level uh, uh, Bible course that you're going to undertake if you attend seminary. This is the unfortunate position. I say it's unfortunate because it doesn't give the Jew of the first century a proper reading. It, it, it waters his, his ethnicity down to where it's just kind of a side thought. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's an ethnic Jew, but, but in, in all purposes, in fact, and, and religiously and, 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 and such, theologically, he's a Christian, so we don't really need to highlight any of those other things he came from. Indeed, we, we, for, for quite a long time, we read Paul as someone who made a break from his Judaism and his Jewish way of life and embraced some form of Christianity that resembles you know, more uh, Protestantism or evangelical-looking type Christian. It's interesting that the Protestants, as I say as a side note, Protestant uh, evangelical Christianity typically embraces Paul wholly as the, as one of their own, as kind of a Protestant evangelical, right? We, we, we don't like to think, I don't hear too many pastors, at least the evangelical Protestant, Protestant evangelicals teaching, that Paul abandoned his Judaism in order to embrace Catholicism, I don't hear that being taught, right? Was Paul a Catholic? Maybe the Catholics want to chime in on this. Those of you who are Catholic and uh, are listening to this uh, YouTube video or listening to this podcast, want to leave me a comment, shoot, shoot me an email, let me know that you embrace Paul as one of your own. Or maybe you Greek or Orthodox uh, Christians feel that Paul became an Orthodox Greek uh, Christian, right? <laughs> but uh, in the Protestant tradition that I was raised in as a Baptist, it was more natural to think that Paul became essentially an evangelical Protestant, <laughs> uh, just like the rest of us. <laughs> you know, in other words, he didn't become, he, he abandoned Judaism. All, all the groups agree with that, right? He left Judaism behind. You know, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, they, they all agree that he left Judaism for the most part. But um, which group, he, which denomination he joined after that, 
<laughs> is kind of a, a humorous uh, uh, thing to think about. But um, Nanos, Nanos uh, concludes, if some Christ-following Jews also attended uh, Jewish communal meetings, i.e. synagogues, that is approached as if it was an action separate from attending Christ-follower meetings, i.e., uh, churches, he says on the next page. Christians and Jews represented separate group identities. They met separately, and they upheld different foundational norms. And I'll stop there uh, with our little review on where we're going. We'll pick up more of this in weeks to come as we continue to challenge this idea of who are the weak in faith? Were they Christians who are still holding on to the law? Or were they instead the stumbling Jews that Paul referenced in um, Romans chapter 11? People who the Gentile Christians need to uh, stay connected with to the degree that they can continue to witness to them and share the love of Messiah with them through their lifestyle rather than kind of push them out the door as this other group that, oh well. And we certainly don't need to be looking down our nose judgmentally on the fact that they're still keeping Torah, whether they're believing Jews or not. Whether they are Messianic Jews or non-Messianic Jews, their Torah keeping should not be viewed as a sign of weakness. And we're going to keep challenging that position as we work our way down through this particular commentary and see how it bears relevance for our our, our um, mainstream church uh, theology today and our Messianic Jewish uh, uh, groups today. Okay, let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we'll take just the last, I'm going to only spend very short time here. I'm going to spend maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 max uh, on this. Um, I've got a lot of tabs still opened up, um, and basically we're finalizing our look on the Holy Spirit. We were working our way through, let me drop down to the, the very bottom of the page and see this little table that we've been working from. We've got a chart put together by CARM here, and we were working our way uh, two weeks ago uh, before we took a break for Hanukkah. We're working our way through this um, uh, column uh, this table on the Holy Spirit uh, using Acts chapter 5 verse 3 to 4 where Peter calls the Holy Spirit God there. Um, the Holy Spirit is called God by Peter because he says if you're lied to the Holy Spirit then you've lied to God. But we also notice as we read further down to that passage um, that Paul that Peter also says that um, why are you uh, why are you continuing to to challenge uh, the Spirit of God? So it can be really rightly argued that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. They are the one and the same being. But what we're trying to ascertain is whether or not they're different persons, the Holy Spirit being a different person than the Spirit of God, who himself is also a spirit. Or God's is it just very, God's very spirit? And so that's uh, what we've been looking at. What I uh, challenged us with a few weeks back, as I kind of uh, leaped through a bunch of commentaries and passages, let me just kind of show you some of them. All right, what we're what I've kind of challenged us with is the idea that if you take the position that the Spirit of God and passages that mention the Holy Spirit is simply a reference to God's very own Spirit itself, then you're going to likely hold to a view that's more Unitarian in view, meaning you're not going to describe God in terms of personhood. You're likely going to take a position that there's only one God, one being known as God, and passages that talk about the Holy Spirit are simply referencing God's very spirit. Thus, it's not a person that's being described. It's an attribute or thing of God that's really being described. 
and thus it's it's a part of God that's inseparable from him. Or maybe you think it is separable from him, but nevertheless it's still his own spirit. It's not a separate person. But those of us who are Orthodox Trinitarians hold the, the idea that the spirit of God is a separate person that's being described in those passages. The challenge, however, is, as, is that as we look at certain passages, what we find um, is that, number one, we find uh, usages of personal pronouns. Yeshua himself describes the Holy Spirit uh, using personal pronouns like him. And, the, and we can see this on my screen now in John 14, 17. The spirit of truth whom the world is not able to receive because it does not see him. And the Greek word is alta. Um, we find that if we look up these particular um, Greek terms, sometimes they can be translated as it. And sometimes it can be translated uh, uh, using uh, masculine. But often it's simply a feature of Greek grammar because Greek has gender when it comes to a grammar. So it's got a grammatical gender to it. Certain words are formed in masculine, some are formed in feminine, and some are neuter. We don't have this very – I don't think this is in English. I'm pretty sure it isn't. Uh, but it's in many other languages. Uh, Hebrew has it as well. Uh, Greek has it. I think Latin has it. Uh, and Spanish, I think, has it. French, I think, has it. But English doesn't. So when we read through our English Bibles, for us to read the word him, uh, like we see in English here, we have to remind ourselves that grammatically, in the Greek, it could be either maybe a neuter or it could be something else. Like, for instance, this is actually a, a, the accusative neuter, third person singular, this particular passage in John 14, 17. So if your translation says it does not receive it, don't be put off too much. They're simply translating this Greek word alta as the neuter, because it is a neuter. But, um, just like John, uh, the same passage in uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right here it says the world cannot receive because it neither sees it nor knows it, right? And they're speaking of the Spirit. Um, but when we come to other passages like John 15, 26, um, Yeshua talks about the helper, the parakletos, which we are familiar with from sermons. Our pastor will say the paraclete. And this phrase parakletos is a nominative masculine singular Greek word. So the, gra the Greek grammar is in the masculine. So that when uh, uh, Yeshua talks about him, the ekenos, down here, the personal pronoun or the demonstrative pronoun. He, the English translators are right to use the word he because it's the nominative masculine singular. And we can see this by the case ending there at the very end, the, the OS, ekenos, which means grammatically speaking, it's accurate to use the masculine. He will bear witness concerning me. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses, John 15, 26, when I pull up their version of the Bible, it says, When the Helper comes that I will send you from the Father the Spirit of truth, which comes from the Father, that one will, I'm sorry, that one will bear witness about me. They don't say it, but they say that one. In this case, they recognize that Echanos is a masculine gender, um, which is also masculine, but because it's a demonstrative pronoun and not a personal pronoun, or possessive pronoun, like his or her, uh, he and she, personal pronoun, his or hers, uh, possessive pronoun, and then demonstrative is this or that. Because it's a demonstrative pronoun, then they opt for that. However, when you get to John 7, uh, 16, 17, uh, Yeshua speaking again says, I, I tell you the truth, it's a profit of you that I go away. I'm paraphrasing. For if I don't go away, the helper, right, the parakletos again, uh, he, uh, he cannot come to you. However, if I go, I will send him to you. And when we look at the Greek, it's an accusative masculine, 
All right, so let's see what the Jehovah's Witnesses have to say this time. Again, this um, uh, 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 personal possessive pronoun uh, in the Greek here, auton, is pointing back to, uh, case-wise, to the same uh, parakletos, same uh, a gender. They're both masculine. So um, what do the Jehovah's Witnesses have to say about John 16, 17? Let's take a look. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I'm going away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him. Whoa. Yeah. This time, even the Jehovah's Witnesses have to concede. There's no way for them to wiggle out of a neuter uh, gendered uh, pronoun. And there's no way for them to wiggle out of a demonstrative pronoun. They're left with the truth of the fact that this time, auton in the Greek is a personal possessive pronoun. And it's in the accusative masculine third person singular. The key point is it's masculine. And it's referring back to the hymn, of course, referring back to the helper, the parakletos, which is definitely a noun or nominative in the masculine singular. So it makes sense for Yeshua to say him rather than say it. And he should, and since it's not a demonstrative pronoun, he can't say that. Right? So the Jehovah's Witnesses are forced in their translation to refer to, probably uncomfortably, but as I'm kind of picking on them a little bit here, but they're, they're forced to suddenly call the Holy Spirit a hymn. Yeah. <laughs> so this is one case where their translation is going to agree with it, most English translations as well. They call the Spirit a hymn in their translation. And then we continue down this uh, the same line of logic. We look at John 16, 13. Uh, when, however, he shall come, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth, uh, for he will not speak for himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and the things coming he will declare to you. And so your most English translations are going to say he. we got ekanos, which is a pro demonstrative pronoun again. Uh, the spirit of truth is a neuter singular, so we could say it there if we want to. It will guide you into all truth. This is... Um, uh, uh, in fact, the he's here are supplied by the translator. Really, the own pro the, the the pronoun uh, shows up very early. The kenos right there. Uh, he, the spirit of truth. But after that, the verbs, um, the lese and the the ha ha degese and all that. There's really no pronoun attached to it. Uh, likewise, down here, akuse he may hear. There's it's really just a verb. Um, there's no, you know, here again, Lalesa, he will speak. You can see it there. It says he will speak. But there's no pronoun attached to it. He will declare, anangele, uh, all those things. Really, the only, um, the pronoun in reference to the Spirit is way up here in Akinos, uh, which is a demonstrative. So, what do you think the Jehovah's Witnesses? Let's see if you guys have been following along. What do you think they're going to say? Of course they're going to say that, right? Let's see what they say. John 16, 13. Let's pull it up. However, when that one comes, yep, you guessed it. Why do they say that one? Why do they say use a demonstrative pronoun? Because, of course, in the Greek, it's a demonstrative pronoun. And it's masculine. So your, your Orthodox uh, evangelicals are going to prefer to say he, but... The, uh, the 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 um the unitarian uh, type of uh, uh you know, what do we say um uh, uh, uh what about the, the the whole Jehovah's Witnessism there's a, an a word that's lost in my head right now um Arian there that's the word I was looking for the Arianistic theology that they hold to which you know discounts Yeshua being true God and the Holy Spirit being a true person of God as well is going to put him back into some sort of impersonal force type aspect by calling him a that. However, when that one comes, but I want you to understand that again, from a Greek perspective, 
To say that is simply a reference to the demonstrative pronoun that the Greek is cast into. So I don't come down too hard on their translation, but I do come down pretty hard on their theology. But from the translation, you would not be able to catch that. However, this is one of those verses where it's a little bit ambiguous, because they say, when that one comes the Spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his of his own initiative, but what he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things to come. And now you're scratching your head going, what? <laughs> if it's an impersonal force, then why are you giving it personal pronouns? Especially in this case, where, as I mentioned, the Greek, the, the, there's no pronoun here. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a verb in the future indicative active third person singular, but there's not really a pronoun attached to it unless it's referring back to this particular pronoun, which it likely is in case. But um, the point I'm trying to make is that there's no gender attached to it, as far as I can tell. Future, indicative, active, third person, but it doesn't say masculine or feminine. We could try and guess from the, uh, the case ending there. Um, but uh, the point I'm trying to make is... Uh, it's funny that the Jehovah's Witnesses actually do that through the translation. So those are some of the things that are going to um, draw a lot of attention when we're looking at these passages. We'll continue to look at this Holy Spirit aspect more as we go, but next week we're going to work, continue working our way down through the table. I'm just telling you where we're going. Next week we'll swing all the way back over again to the beginning, to this particular um, uh, uh, uh table right here, this part of the table, this, um, uh, I keep forgetting, this is a row, this row header. Uh, I need to study my Excel terminology more, more, uh, a little bit more. So we got Father uh, referred to or called Creator in Isaiah 64, 8. We'll look at that next week. We'll move into the Son being referenced as Creator in John and in Colossians. And then we'll finally move to the Holy Spirit being given this title of Creator in the book of Job. And so that's where we're going to go next week. We'll start with Creator and then uh, work our way uh, through the passages and go that way. Okay? So that'll do it for our study on exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. All right, let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name, and I thank you for uh, the students. I thank you so much for the interaction that I have with them. Indeed, without this interaction, uh, I would be pretty, not just lonely, but um, uh, uh, pretty hungry. Um, being in the place where I'm at in South Korea right now, where I don't have a lot of, where I don't have any, I shouldn't say a lot, I should have zero amount of opportunity to um, uh connect with the community in, in real life, especially because of the COVID lockdowns and the dangers of, of, of uh, you know, the pandemic right outside my door and things like that. But not only that, um, just the, the absence of messianic communities out here in Korea and things like that. So I thank you, Lord, that you have um, brought the students into connection with me and that I can uh, reach out with them and we can laugh and, and, and discuss these topics together and interact and make fellowship with one another, even if it's through this medium known as the internet. Bless them where they're at. Continue to raise them up. Continue to provide for them supernaturally. Continue to give them a hope uh, that uh, you're in control and a faith that you're working things out even when it doesn't look like it on the surface. Continue to protect us and heal us from uh, the dangers all around us. Uh, heal our minds as well as our spirits and our bodies uh, because there's so much stress in the world today that people are going crazy. They're losing their minds and they're turning to um, uh, things that are not healthy uh, uh, in, in so many ways. We should not be like that, Lord. We have a greater hope in you as our God, as our Father, and in the promises that you've made to us through Messiah Yeshua. Raise us up 
and give us a voice of reason and, and moral clarity and spiritual sanity in this otherwise insane world around us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>